0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Confident Faith, today as we look to our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. So let's join Dr. Neufeld now as he provides for us a message entitled, Withstanding God's Test.
1: Those of you who know me know that I'm a motorcycle enthusiast, big time. You know, I always say that I'm not a biker. You know, that in my mind conjures up images of tattoos and foul language and bad sexual conduct and a whole awful lot of things that I as a Christian man don't want to be associated with. You know, a motorcycle enthusiast in my mind, on the other hand, loves motorcycles. I'm not committed to one brand of motorcycles, nor do I make fun of other kinds of motorcycles. I'm aware that the motorcycles that exist are made to perform different functions from dirt bikes to sport bikes to adventure bikes to cruisers to touring bikes, a lot of others. I find them fascinating, and I've ridden motorcycles for many years now. A number of years ago, I watched a television program which showed the creation of the Harley-Davidson V-Rod, which was back then an innovative new generation in Harley-Davidson's motorcycle lineup. It was supposed to attract a a new generation of Harley-Davidson riders. what fascinated me about the program was not that it took some two years to create the motorcycle. I mean, that's normal. A lot of design goes into a number of bikes. What fascinated me was what was done to test the bike before it ever reached production. You know, in one test, they simulated the engine strains that would be required to drive the bike over 800 kilometers down the German Autobahn without ever stopping. In one test, they sprayed the bike from every corner with high pressure water for hours and then saw if the bike would start instantly. Another test they rode it through over forty degree temperature for hours and then placed it idling into a hot tin shed, left it idling for over an hour, came back, rode it again, and then parked it again in that same shed, left it idling. They did that all day long. Uh, next, they rode the bike for hours at rapid speed over a set of bumps, wherein you might think the bike would rattle apart to ribbons. And with every test, the engineers would detect a new weakness, and the bike would have to be redesigned until it was able to withstand every test flawlessly. The idea was that when you buy the Harley-Davidson V-Rod, it would do whatever you wanted it to do, and it would not break. The motorcycle would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James chapter 1, verses 2-4 to four says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So let me begin with what may be to you an amazing thought. God is determined to test you. That's what James tells us. Testing and trials, those two words, actually belong together. Your trials, your hardships, your struggles, your suffering is actually a test from God. Not so sure? Well, listen to another text. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 and verse 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or listen to James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. See, God is determined to test you, much in the way the engineers at Harley once tested the V-Rod. He will deliberately lead you into suffering, and through moments when you think your heart is going to break, it will be uncomfortable, it will be painful, it will stretch you, it will seem confusing, but it will help you to obtain the crown of life. And in today's message, I want to help you to do two things. First of all, identify your hardships and suffering as something that a gracious God has brought into your life. And secondly, learn how to respond. You know, we've been studying the life of Abraham, the man of faith. And every Bible student knows that Genesis 22 represents the greatest expression of Abraham's faith. It represents an enormous test in which Abraham passes with flying colors. And because of Genesis 22, Abraham will always be remembered as not only as the great man of faith, but as the father of faith, the father of all who believe. Now, that would be saying a lot, but today I'm going to say more. Genesis 22 will help you understand and successfully withstand and succeed in your own moments of testing. Genesis 22 is a manual of what to do when God tests you. You must learn this text. It's essential for your Christian life. So I'm reading Genesis 22 verses 1 to 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. See, our passage opens by saying that God tested Abraham. Let us be clear in this. Testing is not temptation. Temptation, says the book of James, is what Satan is all about. He wants to entice us to do evil. Testing is what God is all about. He wants to prepare us for holiness and life with him in eternity. He wants our faith to be perfect and lacking in nothing. And that's the point. God deliberately tests his people. Now, let's look again at this passage. God tested Abraham. In the last chapter, in verse 33, when Abraham was realizing that all the promises of God were coming true, he came to realize that God had revealed himself as El Olam, the eternal God, the one true God, the God who is from eternity past and into eternity future. All that God speaks is because he, the only true God, exists beyond time, And therefore, when he speaks of a future event, it's because he's already been there. And I make a point of this because some liberal commentators feel that Abraham would have thought of sacrificing Isaac because this was a common practice among some of the pagan religions at that time. The idea was that the gods produced fertility and and therefore had a right to demand something back from what they produced. That meant that they could demand the firstborn as an offering. Now, just so that we're clear here, everywhere in the Bible, the idea of sacrificing children to a deity is called an abomination. It's an inherently evil practice. It's associated only with those who practice wickedness. And the God of Abraham had nothing in common with those deities. It is this that makes this command so startling. We know the end of the story, but let's take some time to just imagine this from Abraham's perspective. Listen to what God says. First of all, take your only son, he says. We know that Ishmael is his son, but God has sent him away. He's not going to come back. Ishmael has found life apart from Abraham. He's not coming back. Isaac is probably now somewhere between 15 to 20 years of age, and it has been years, and Isaac is his only son. Secondly, God adds, the one whom you love. So we know the old man loved Isaac. He loved him because the boy represented the reason he left his country. That boy was everything he had ever wanted from life. That boy was a fulfillment of the promise of God. It would have been a small thing to sacrifice himself for the son. But no, this was to be the other way around. All of this must have filled Abraham with confusion. Tests are like that, you know. They never make sense when we go through them. We encounter death and our hearts cry out, why? We lose our health, or we lose our business, or we lose our standing in the community. We lose a spouse or a child. We lose something, and we're tempted to shake our fist at God and demand that He give an accounting. Or we may end up like Job's wife who simply counseled her husband to curse God and die. Have you ever taken a class, perhaps in high school or university, in which you ask the student who's taken the class, what are the professor's exams like? You ask because you wanted to know what it would take to pass. How much study? What are the things that matter to the professor? Well, in the same vein, you should ask, what does God who tests me want of me? Are his tests tough? Do you think they are? When the book of Hebrews describes the great men and women of faith in the past, Hebrews chapter 11, 35 to 38 says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Now, to be faithful to the Scripture, God arranges the testing of each believer. He, as it were, is tailor-making our testing so that it would fit directly to us. And so for that reason, it does absolutely no good to complain that our testing is too heavy or that it's too light even. We don't look for hardship. He, in his infinite wisdom, seeks to perfect our faith. And that's what he's doing here for Abraham. This moment is designed for Abraham in a way that perfectly fits him. I hope that satisfies you. God was maturing his man of faith, and that's what God is doing in you as well.
0: As we begin 2018, we want to thank all of those who support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as a Partner to Tell Monthly Partner. Your regular commitment allows for the essentials of ministry to take place, and we're so grateful. 2018 begins a celebration of our 60th anniversary of ministry in Canada, and the giving of every partner has made this milestone possible. Our goal for this special year is to surpass 700 monthly partners, perhaps you've never given, or or maybe two or three times a year. Maybe this is the year you become a Partner to Tell Monthly Partner. Our commitment will be to continue to provide the Bible teaching you expect, but more, more programs, reaching more people, using more mediums than ever before, while remaining faithful to the mission and legacy established 60 years ago by our founder, Theodore Epp. Become our next Partner to Tell Monthly Partner today. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I want to speak about how to pass God's tests. Genesis 22 represents Abraham's finest hour. In the past, we have seen him in moments of faith and in moments of failure. But now, God reveals in Abraham something that looks like pure gold. God has been molding him and this test shows us that Abraham is a shining example of a man of faith. I'm reading Genesis chapter 22, verse three. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice, first of all, Abraham passes the test by being obedient to God. The thing that strikes me about this passage is Abraham's response to God. Now, in the past, back in Genesis 18, I would describe Abraham as the great negotiator. In Genesis 15, after God told him that he was his shield and his great reward, Abraham responds by saying, ha ha, Lord, what will you give me that is of any lasting value since I remain childless? Remember that? And then remember Genesis 17, when God told him of a son that would come from he and Sarah when he is close to 100 years of age, and he says, if only Ishmael would live before you. And then in Genesis 18, when he hears of the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, He even questions the righteousness of God. And he asks, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? But now, in Genesis 22, the great negotiator is silent. He does not respond. He says nothing at all. Only that the text says early the next morning. No delay, no argument, no anger, just simple obedience. The old man bows before God and responds the way a man of God, a mature man of faith, responds. He obeys. The question is not the cost. The question is only one thing, has God spoken? And if he has, the old man will obey. Try with me for just a moment to imagine this. I imagine Abraham standing there, it's very early in the morning, he's cutting wood. I imagine him with an ax. And with every blow of the ax, the old man is weeping. He's loading his donkey, his men have been called and he wipes the tears from his eyes. He doesn't want anyone to see that he's crying. and So he says nothing. He simply goes about doing what God has called him to do. That's the first step of passing God's test. It's done not in negotiating or in complaining or in crying out that it's unjust. It's done through obedience. Now let's read verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. See, I want you to notice the first several words of verse 4 on the third day. It takes Abraham three days to get from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. And all the way there, I can imagine him. He's quiet and he's deep in thought. No doubt he remembered the reason he left Ur of the Chaldeans on his sacred pilgrimage. It all came because God promised that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And yet here he was at the command of God going to sacrifice his son. I imagine him remembering that day, which by now might have been some 40 years ago, when God met him that night after he had cut a heifer, a goat, and a ram in half, and God himself had walked between those pieces and pronounced a curse on himself, if the promise he had made would fail. And it's within that meditation that I've come to understand what Abraham said on the final day. I'm reading verse five now. It says, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Well, now, if Abraham had been meditating for three days, remembering all that God has done, we have to ask how he meant the words of verse 5. Is he lying to these young men? Is he really thinking, well, now, if I tell these young men the truth, they're going to try to stop me, so I better not tell them what I'm really up to. Is that what verse 5 means when Abraham says, I and the boy will go to worship on the mountain, and then I and the boy will come back after our time of worship? See, I'm convinced that Abraham was not lying about that. After all, why would he have to? He could have said, we want to go on alone. Nothing further needed to be said. Instead, he said that he and the boy would come back. Why did he think that? See, that question is the central question in the study of this text. If you miss this, you miss everything. See, I raise this because I have heard some people teach this text as if the lesson to be learned here is that God calls us to give up on all the rewards and the promises. He wants us to desire only him and not the rewards that he brings. Listen, that's a foolish way to interpret this text. God promises us forgiveness of sins that we will be delivered from the wrath to come. He promises us heaven, that we will be adopted into His family as sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Christ, ruling and reigning with Him for all of eternity. See, if God were to say, sacrifice what I have promised you so that only I am important to you, is that not foolishness? If God does not keep His promises, well, then He ceases to be God. The very act of God keeping his promises is the very nature of our God. Because if God promised Abraham that he would give his seed this land and even reinforced it with a covenant stating that he himself, the great God of heaven, would be torn apart like those animals if this covenant failed, and if that were all true and Abraham knew it was true, then that must have meant that either Abraham and Isaac would together come down from that mountain, father and son together, or the very universe itself would cease to exist. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:17 17 to 19. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Did you hear that? The reason Abraham said what he did to his servants, says the book of Hebrews, is because he knows that God simply can't make a promise and then turn his back on the thing that he has promised. That's not possible. Instead, God will have to raise Isaac from the dead. And that, that conclusion is the conclusion of a man of faith no doubt. That's what Abraham had been meditating on those three days as he walked along with his son. He must have been meditating on the nature of God, El Olam, the everlasting God. That's who God is. And so we have seen Abraham obeying God in faith and believing that no matter what God demands of him, he can obey because one thing is never in doubt, and that thing is the promise of God. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of God will not fail. And it's here that the story becomes altogether amazing. Isaac is carrying a bundle of wood on his shoulders, and they're climbing Mount Moriah. So let's read the text. I'm reading Genesis 22, verses six to eight. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. You know, when Isaac asks, where's the sacrifice? Abraham answers, God will provide it. Again, as before, I don't think he's lying. Whether Isaac is the sacrifice or some other option is found, God will provide. The truth is, Abraham is trusting. And then comes the most amazing story of all. Abraham builds the altar and then takes and binds Isaac to it. You know, I'm going to deal with the significance of that tomorrow, no doubt. It would have been a small thing for Isaac to resist his father, but he doesn't. He, like Abraham, is completely silent. And then in the final act of faith, Abraham lifts up his knife, not just in obedience, but in faith, to bring it down onto his son. But as I've said, the significance of that moment is so great that I'm going to do an entire sermon on that one event. But now, let's make application and bring this account into our world. In all of our tests, this is what God is looking for. He wants a man or a woman who will simply say yes to him at every point and at every moment. Don't ever refuse his will. Obey the word of God regardless of the cost. Obedience will test you. And some, many, indeed all believers, have felt that obedience bears a great cost. But it is God testing us. And secondly, think about what obedience means within the scope of God's truth. If God has promised never to forsake you and even to work everything out for your long-term good, then does the present moment of trial mean something other than that? Think about it, not from a secular perspective, but from the perspective of a God-bathed world. And finally, just trust, just believe, just know that heaven and earth will disappear before any of the promises of God would fail. That's what's required to pass God's tests. And if we don't respond in that way, God will continue to test us until we learn. That's because God loves us and wants to perfect us, preparing us for eternity.
0: John, this has always been a bit of a frightful story for me because I see God testing Abraham, and, and, and I wonder, can I endure those types of tests? Yeah, I know that the
1: book of Hebrews tells us that, that no trial of the present seems, you know, pleasant. It never is pleasant. It's difficult to go through the tests in life. And most of the tests that we'll encounter from God's hand will include suffering. And they'll include hardship. And sometimes, you know, we cry out to God and say, oh, God, how can this thing be? But we pass the test when we keep on putting our eyes on the promise, and not just the promise, but on the God who made the promise. And we consider that God is unable to lie and therefore what he has spoken must be confirmed in the end.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. (music) Do you ever wonder how your giving to Back to the Bible Canada makes a difference? Shona said, back to the Bible Canada, continues to bring a drifting world back to God's word. Don't ever change. Kim said, not only do I find the program enjoyable, it goes way beyond that to be a sustaining ministry for my husband and I, keeping us in touch daily with the scriptures. Mark wrote, I'm working through singing the Lord's song in a strange land. It is both encouraging and terribly convicting. I suppose that is what truth always does in our hearts. Jacob said the teaching of Dr. Neufeld is so needed. Thank you for not being afraid to tell us as it says. This is the tip of the iceberg as men, women, young and old tap into the Bible, resources provided with your support. Thank you and please keep it up. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.